Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. I'm currently a sophomore at UCLA, was elected as the youngest delegate for Joe Biden, and co-hosts this podcast. I'm Jill Weinbanks, the author of The Watergate Girl and an MSNBC legal analyst. I'm also the wearer of hashtag Jill Spins. And today's spin in honor of our special guest says, a woman's place is in the House and the Senate. If there's anything that the Trump administration taught us about politics, it should be the importance of electing officials who respect the basic principles of democracy and the Constitution. Part of how we do so is to get voters to turn out and vote both up and down the ballot. The other part of the equation is finding people across the country who do not believe in the big lie, suppressing the vote, and tearing away at the fabric of our nation, but instead will represent the concerns of their constituents, defend democracy, and remain true to the ideals upon which America was founded. That is the fight that Amanda Littman, our guest today, is leading. Amanda is the co-founder and co-executive director of Run for Something, an organization that dedicated itself to recruiting and supporting young candidates running for down-ballot races. Its mission is to get candidates from non-traditional backgrounds to run and with state and local offices and they want to create a next-generation slate of political candidates that will then seek higher office in the future. Before her time at Run for Something, Amanda was Hillary Clinton's email director, yeah, not the ones you're thinking of, her real emails, and um, she also worked for uh, Charlie Crist, she was his digital director uh, when he ran for governor in 2014, And she was an email writer for Barack Obama for his re-election in 2012. She is also the co-host of two podcasts, Run for Something and Battleground. Amanda is a graduate of Northwestern University, which is only minutes away from where I am right now. And I know you're going to find her an extremely persuasive and intellectual person. So welcome, Amanda. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk about Run for Something. Of course. So let's get started by knowing a little bit more about you and Run for Something. Um, you've held some amazing positions for top candidates, and I'm wondering if you can just tell our audience a little bit about your um, your age, your background, and maybe like even your school, where you went to school and what your major was. Sure. Um, so I'm 31 years old. Uh, right? Yeah, 31. I was born and raised in Northern Virginia. I went to college at Northwestern University specifically because I wanted to work for Barack Obama. Um, I had a family friend when I was in high school um, who was a senior at Northwestern and was interning on his original campaign in 2007, 2008. And when I realized I wanted to work for him, I thought, where do I go that lets me do that? So went to Northwestern. I got my degree in American Studies. I wrote my thesis on women running for office against other women and how that changed gender performance in TDS. So this has always been an interest of mine. Um, yeah, my, so, sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say my senior year, of, I did um, campus journalism and worked in different campaigns, but my senior year, I got an internship on the Obama reelect in 2012 and worked from him through to election day and beyond. So you worked for President Obama and you also worked for um, Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you yourself have run or ever run for office and will you ever run for office? <laughs> um, no, I have not. I have been working on campaigns now for about a decade. 
Um, I think you should run for office because there's a problem you care about solving and an office that lets you solve it. And for me, the problem I care about solving is the one that run for something is solving. So for now, I think this is what I want to keep doing. Mm-hmm. Um, when did you create Run for Something and what motivated you to found, uh, found it? So I worked for Hillary for about two years. I was her email director on her presidential campaign based here in New York where I now live. And about a week after election day, when I was still just devastated, I got a Facebook message from somebody I'd gone to college with. Hey, Amanda, I'm a public school teacher here in Chicago. They keep cutting our budgets. If Trump can be president, it seems like anybody can do this. What do I do? You know politics, you know this world, what do I do? I didn't have an answer for him because if you were young and newly excited about politics and wanted to do more than vote and more than volunteer, there was nowhere you could go that would answer your call. And that to me felt like a symptom of some really big problems in the Democratic Party. So I reached out to a whole bunch of people, one of whom became my co-founder, Ross Morales Riquetto. We wrote a plan, we built a website, and then we launched Run for Something on Inauguration Day thinking we would recruit and support young, diverse progressives to run for local office and that maybe in the first year we'd get 100 people because it's really hard to recruit folks to run and young people definitely didn't want to run as far as we knew. In the first week, we had 1,000 people sign up and as of today, we're up to nearly 90,000 young people all across the country who said they want to run for office. That's truly remarkable. And I think, like you said, just being a young person, there is a significant underrepresentation of young people um, in elected offices, but also just running for office. Um, You focus much of Run for Something on down-ballot races, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about that and why specifically you choose to focus on down-ballot races. So Run for Something specifically focuses on things like state house, state senate, city council, school board, library board, um, county commissioners, sheriffs, DAs. Uh, American River Flood Control District trustees, the kinds of positions that make up 99% of the elected offices in the United States. You know, there are more than half a million elected offices, and most of them are not Congress and not governor. We focused on those for two reasons. One, the policy impact. Um, We've seen, especially over the last couple of years, how much it matters who's in local leadership, from school boards making decisions about curriculum and equity and Uh, and teacher pay to city councils making decisions about housing. Um, So we've seen like city councils make decisions about housing and businesses opening or closing and the kinds of rules that determine traffic patterns and state legislatures quite obviously make decisions on everything from voting rights to criminal justice reform to climate issues within a single state. There is so much that these positions do, and it really matters to have good leaders in them, especially when we can't count on the federal government to take action as quickly as we need it to. On the politics side, it matters that we have really good leaders in these positions because over time, those leaders become members of Congress and governors and senators. The way you build a bench of talent for the future is to invest in local talent now. It's also a really good way to make sure that Democrats are organizing everywhere, not just the places where we can win electoral college uh, votes or the places that are top battlegrounds year over year. You know, when you're working with candidates all across the country, which Run for Something does, and you're working with school board races and city council races and, you know, mayor's races, it's much, it's much deeper and much broader and much more focused, I think, on communities that often have never really had a Democrat to even show up and vote for. Why, listening to you, you have made me wish that I were young and ready to run because I think you've really identified something completely important to our democracy. And nobody has seen it more recently than all of us watching school boards and the protests about 
vaccines and mass mandates. Um, have you seen a change in demographics of candidates since you founded Run for Something? Well, there isn't a great research on this, which is one of the many problems. And it's really hard to collect data on down ballot elections because they're run in some places on the state level and in some places on the city or county or even town level. So it's tricky. That being said, you know, we have seen over and over again, cycle after cycle, run for something candidates make history as the first, the youngest person or the first woman or the first woman of color or the first LGBTQ person or things like the first renter to serve on a city council or a state assembly. On every possible facet, our folks keep making history, which tells me that at the very least, we are breaking new ground for what leadership looks like. Yeah, and I'm going to guess Victor's going to be one of those people soon because he was the youngest candidate as a Biden delegate, and he remains incredibly involved. And I know that this is something that could help him. Is his generation enthusiastic in general? Is it apathetic about politics? Is it harder to recruit them? What are the problems you're encountering in recruiting Victor's generation? Well, I think one of the things that Run for Something does is exclusively focus on people aged 40 and younger. Um, we wanted to do that because we know that it is a generation or a couple generations that have very specific challenges for the stage of life that we're in. And I count myself as one of them. Um, when we started this, I was 26, now I'm 31. Um, these are people who are transient, who have moved around quite a bit, who are often trying to find a stable career path. Mm-hmm. Most of them do not own homes. Most of them are not independently wealthy. Their friends and family are not wealthy. Most of them can't afford to move back to where they grew up, which I think is a really interesting dynamic. Like, can't move home, so the place that you were born is no longer affordable to the place where you might live now as mm-hmm. a young adult. Most of them have, many of them have young kids. Um, some of them are married, some of them are not. All of that's to say is that there's some real structural barriers at play for young people. You know, office, election officials and elected structures were not meant for young people. They were meant for older retirees in many places, people who didn't have full-time jobs, people who had independent wealth or had wealthy networks. So we are trying really hard to mitigate some of the hardest things about this. And we can't fix every structural problem, but we can at the very least open the door to young people, show them that there is a path, that there is an entry point, and then ensure that as they want to get on that path, there is support along the way. So I've been really, um, I don't know, glad, happy, relieved to see that more than half of the folks we work with are under the age of 30, which tells me that at the very least we're making a start in, in advancing the sort of young youth takeover of government. Do, do you help them with fundraising or do you raise your own funds and dole it out to potential candidates? Uh, it's a little bit of both. And it depends on the state. You know, in some places, it's very easy for us to give money. In some places, it's very hard. Um, so in states where we have the, the legal infrastructure set up to donate, we do. We give out some funds. Um, in other places and in most places, we help people learn how to fundraise themselves. Um, a lot of these races, the budgets aren't that big. It's five, ten, twenty thousand dollars, which is certainly a lot of money, yes. but it's not millions. <laughs> it's not what you see in the headlines every day. So, being really cognizant of the scale in which we're working and how much a little bit of hustle and a little bit of skills training for a candidate can go a long way. And, and what are the ways that you have been able to recruit and engage younger people in politics and running for office? Are you using social media? What are you doing? 
Um, it's a little bit of social media. It's a little bit of advertising. It's a little bit of press. It's a little bit of uh, influencer and celebrity work. It's a little bit of word of mouth. It's a little bit of storytelling of the people we've worked with who have run and won and run and lost, um, knowing that when they go first, more people follow after. Mm. And uh, a lot of it comes through our alumni now. One of the things I'm really proud of is that now five years in, we've helped elect 630 people across 48 states. Those folks are generating what I would like to refer to as a new old boys club. But instead of old and boys, it's mostly young people and mostly young women and young people of color. Um, and they are helping us recruit more folks. And it's a program that we've been building out over the last couple of years called Relational Recruitment, the same way that you do relational organizing. Um, how do we help empower alumni to find more people to run, whether in their district or ultimately for their own successor? That's extremely impressive statistics that you've quoted. And I hope that our listeners will consider going on your website and thinking about getting involved in this. Um, have you worked with Snapchat? Because I, I know they recently launched a program that would also help recruit young people to run for office. So I'm just wondering if, if they've been helpful to you or whether other social media companies have. Yes, we worked very closely with Snapchat on that tool. Um, we started talking to Snapchat about a year ago about the work to recruit people to run for office. We were close advisors on them as part of their build out. And Snapchat, as part of that mini, which is really cool, you can enter your information and think about where you might want to run, learn a little more, and then sign up with a nonpartisan or a nonprofit partner. We're one of those partners, and more than 5,000 people have come through Snapchat and signed up with Run for Something. And is there any advice that you could offer right now, just sort of a couple of steps for young potential candidates who, you know, people who want to run for office, what steps should they start taking right now? If you're a young person thinking about running for office in the short term, uh, start asking yourself, what is the problem you care about solving? What is the office that will give you a platform to solve it? And why should voters want you to win? Not why do you want to win? Winning yes. is great. You want to win because losing is terrible. Why should voters want you to win? What are you going to deliver for them? And if you can answer those three questions, that's your campaign message. I'm running for X office for Y reason, and you should vote for me because of Z. Once you've got that, it's just a matter of logistics. It's learning the rules about how to get on the ballot. It's finding all, make sure you've got all the deadlines and the mechanics. It's how many voters do you need to reach and how much does it cost to reach them and how much money do you need to raise? None of this is rocket science. Like people dumber than you, if you listen to the show, have done this and succeeded. Yeah. It is just logistics. And Run For Something is here to help you with the logistics. If it's, you're thinking a little further down the road or a little further like in your career, start volunteering on local campaigns and get to know people. Um, I would especially encourage you to think about the city council, county committee, those kinds of roles, because the people you get to know when you volunteer there are the ones who are going to stick around for the long haul. And when you ultimately decide to run, those are the people you're going to need on your side. Very interesting, because your advice actually works for any job a person wants, uh, particularly that last little piece of advice, which is don't tell them why you want the job. Tell them what you can do for them in the job. That's really the important thing. Yes, for sure. I want to move on to Virginia, New Jersey, um, which was the most recent election that made national headlines. I'm wondering what lessons have you learned from Virginia and New Jersey for your organization? Well, I think more broadly on the 2021 elections, while the Virginia governor's race and the House of Delegates races were 
deeply disappointing. And obviously the Virginia's, the New Jersey governor's race was too close for comfort. And we lost a couple of seats in the state legislature there. All of that is terrible. And run for something candidates across the country had an excellent night. <laughs> we had a higher win rate than we did in any previous cycle. Um, nearly half of our candidates on election day themselves actually won. To me, that tells us that when we are willing to compete and advocate for something, we're willing to knock doors and make calls and think outside the box on what the priorities are and really talk to voters about the issues they care about. You know, one of the things I think, especially in Virginia, that we lost sight of is Democrats in Virginia had done amazing things, had actually really delivered for people. And that wasn't what the gubernatorial campaign was about. It wasn't a referendum on that power. So when we think about what we can do to support future candidates and how we can make sure we're winning, it's not dismissing the problems people see as not real or trying to pretend that their, their fears, excuse me, are irrational. It's talking to them and meeting them where their feelings are and really understanding that whether we like it or not, that's what determines voting behavior. Voting is not a rational activity. You got to make sure that when you're talking to voters at the doors and that you are talking to voters at the doors, you are really being open to the chaos that you might find. I remember when I worked on the Biden campaign this past fall, one of the key phrases was meeting voters where they are. And I think that's so important as we head into the 2020 midterm elections, but especially with these local races. Um, so I, I guess, do you think the down ballot victories um, throughout the country um, indicate that there's more hope for Democrats and that we shouldn't be jumping to conclusions based off of what happened in the gubernatorial elections in New Jersey and Virginia? Well, I think it depends which Democrats we're talking about. I think short term, it's going to be a really hard 2022 we're going to have to do everything we can to sort of staunch the bleeding, so to speak. Like everything from the fact that it's midterms are always hard for an incumbent presidential party um, to uh, the voter suppression laws that they are passing to the redistricting process that is certainly disadvantaging Democrats in Congress. All of that is going to make it a really hard cycle. And if we can get democracy to last another four to six years, which like, uh, maybe, I don't know. If democracy lasts another four to six years, the future is so bright. There's such amazing leaders who are building power. There's such incredible talent. And there's really some interesting new ideas and fresh energy, even in places you might not think. Like we have amazing leaders in Kansas and deep parts of Texas and Montana and Maine, we have really exciting Democrats who are starting to climb the ranks and who I think could be incredible top of the candidates in a couple of years. Um, we just got to make sure democracy survives to see it. For sure. You wrote a pretty amazing thread on Twitter that I hope we can include in the show notes um, on just all of the down ballot races that um, run for something candidates won. As we head into the 2022 election, what positions do you think are most important? Um, are there any that you want our audience to pay close attention to? Yes, I think there's two sort of categories of positions that I know Run for Something is really focusing on going into 2022, and I encourage everyone to pay attention to. The first is local election administrators. Um, that's county clerks, city clerks, recorder of deeds. You know, the positions take a different term depending on where you are, but there are thousands of them elected across the country over the next couple of years. And these are the positions that are going to make or break uh, whether democracy survives. You know, it's not going to come from Congress and it's not going to be like an electoral college chaos if they try to overturn the 2024 presidential election. It's going to be a county board in Michigan deciding not to certify results or a board in Georgia who realizes they can just close all of the polling locations in a particular black neighborhood. 
or limit the hours that they are open. Now, these positions have incredible power over the way elections are run. Um, they've historically been pretty nonpartisan. Republicans have been trying to take advantage of this and control them. We know a lot of like QAnon conspiracy folks are running for these roles. So run for something is really focusing in there. The second is school boards. Um, we have seen this over the course of the last 30 or 40 years. Republicans have spent a lot of time and money mm -hmm. trying to win school boards. Um, they got away from that a little bit in the last decade, but in the sort of post-Trump Republican Party era, we are seeing unprecedented numbers of Republicans and conservatives running for school boards, donating money to school boards. And even more broadly, we've seen Proud Boys and QAnon and Oath Keepers all say we're recommitting to these positions because they understand if you have a thousand school board members across the country, you can do more to determine the kind of citizens people become than if you control the White House. So Ron Presenting is really digging in on school board work over the next year as well to ensure that at the very least, we're trying to keep the worst possible folks out of decision-making roles in our kids' curriculums. Well, you're scaring me and you're also encouraging me because you're doing something about two things that I think are an existential threat to our country, to democracy, to education, to critical thinking. Uh, so thank you for what you're doing. And I wanna follow up a little bit more on what you said about, uh, in answer to Victor's questions about midterms. Midterms mm -hmm. also have lower turnout uh, in general, that's been the rule. And the lower you go on the ballot, the further down, the fewer votes that are cast. So if you get at the top of the ballot, fewer than you did in a general election, by the time you get to the bottom, mm, hardly anyone is even casting a ballot. You have great advice so far, so I'm gonna push you to say, what could Democrats do to get people to turn out and to vote all the way down the ballot? We need to resource our down ballot candidates the same way that we resource our top of the ticket. You know, we're not gonna flip a state like Kentucky or um, Kansas blue overnight. And we're not gonna do it by starting with the Senate or the governor's race. Mm -hmm. We will do it county by county, school board by school board, city council by city council. And that means that as we think about how to allocate resources in the upcoming cycle, we really think strategically about where the money can go for this. You, know, you think about the Pennsylvania Senate race, for example, in 2022. The places where the Democrat for Senate in Pennsylvania needs to win votes is not necessarily the same as where we need to win House, state House or state Senate seats. The maps just don't overlap. So that means we mm -hmm. need to make sure that those resources are being spread in such a way that the down-ballot candidates have everything they need to ask voters for their votes, that they have everything they need, every resource, every dollar, every hour, every volunteer to show up at people's homes and to make the case. You know, we know that the most compelling thing that moves someone's vote is a relationship between the candidate and the voter. It's been tested over and over again, um, more so than a TV ad or more so than like phone banking. It's a relationship between candidate and voter. A Senate candidate can't really do that. A congressional candidate can't really do that. A city council candidate can. So we want to make sure that those candidates, their time can be spent knocking doors and not mm -hmm. needing to spend all their raising money. So all that's to say, if we want more people to vote the whole ticket, we need to make sure that every person on the ticket has the resources they need to succeed. So everyone listening to this can think about what local organizations and what local candidates can I give yeah. to to allow them to do the work that is most important. And when you talk about all of this, you have a very great communication style. And 
Messaging has been the big criticism of Democrats, that they have great policies, but they aren't communicating them. They aren't putting it out in a way that people are, whoa, that really would help me. So what's your advice on, you know, what should Democrat messaging be and what are the right issues? Well, I always like to reframe this a little bit because message is not something that's distinct from messenger. You know, when Joe Biden says something and when AOC says something, even if they use the exact same words, those messages are received very differently. So we want to make sure that the people delivering the message and what they're actually saying are working in concert so that the messenger is a way, can, can connect with voters in a, really, in a way that is meaningful and authentic and genuine, doesn't sound like BS. Because the thing voters dislike more than anything else is when it feels like someone is lying to them. It feels like someone's trying to sell them a can of goods. So all that's to say, I think the most important thing Democrats can do, instead of trying to come up with some top-down message framework, is to make sure that the people who are communicating to voters most meaningfully are good, are skilled, are able to spend their time wisely, are empowered to have the conversations in a way that connects to the voters. And we've seen this when down-ballot candidates can really talk with folks They're able to often outrun and outperform the top of the ticket because they're able to have conversations in a way that their voters understand. And this is one of the hard things about being a Democrat is that because our voters are more than just white men, we have to be able to talk to a lot of different kinds of people. So it can't come from the top down. It has to come from the bottom up. Um, And I really I think that's it's really important to keep that in mind when we talk about issues and about messages. You know, the issues that are personal for me as a 31-year-old woman in Brooklyn are very different than even a 30-year-old woman living in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. We can't expect all of our candidates to talk the same or even talk about the same things. we got to empower them to be able to have the conversations on their own terms. Still, I think there are some words that are used that may not be the most uh, impactful or that are um, turnoffs even. Right now, the big word being used is it's transformational. And I'm hearing from uh, Twitter and other places that that's a scary word to some people. They don't want transformational. They want improvements. Um, So I think there is something about messaging and the language that you use that may help Democrats. But um, also Democrats... Well, I want to... Yeah. I want to be careful there because I remember... Which Democrats are we talking about and what are we trying to win? Mm-hmm. Like for a New York City Council race, transformational may be exactly what we need. Right. For a, again, I'll go back to Cedar Rapids, Iowa congressional race, it might be the total opposite. And messaging right. is not something that occurs exclusively on our own terms. This is the other piece of the vacuum that I think often gets left out. Right. For as much as what matters what Democratic candidates say, it matters just as much, if not more so, what Republicans and what Republican media are saying in particular. Because we know that no matter what Democratic candidates actually say, you know, very few Democratic candidates in 2020 or even 20, yeah, 2020 were in support of defund the police. That didn't matter. It didn't matter because Republicans were going to claim it anyway. So being really cognizant of the, the broader ecosystem in which these conversations are having, how they're being heard, what they're being mediated through, I think that sort of gets back to what I was saying earlier of local candidates can often best connect on yes. these because they're not mediated through the media. They're not coming through ads. They're coming person to person. Do you think Democrats have started doing enough at the local level? I mean, obviously you are doing that and that's terrific, but 
is there enough support from the Democratic Party? And uh, we've seen Republicans, as you noted, taking over school boards and having the impact, taking over state legislatures. What could they be doing, what could Democrats be doing differently? Well, I think it's worth keeping in mind that Republicans are on year 39 of their 40-year plan to build sustainable permanent power. Democrats are on year, we'll generously call it year five. (laughs) So we have a long way to go. We have made such incredible progress over the last five years, and we are just running at such a deficit. Um, So I think especially as we look to 2022, we see you know, top-of-ticket candidates or flashy congressional candidates like roll out their campaigns with exciting videos and viral tweets. That's great. And does that build sustainable power? Probably not. And if it doesn't, how can we reallocate resources accordingly? So ensuring that grassroots organizations and civic outreach groups that are doing year-round organizing, especially around young people and communities of color, have every resource they need. And making sure that the things that feel boring and unexciting and maybe not even innovative because local campaigns and local organizing is not innovative. It's rocket. It's not rocket science. It's kind of boring, but really important, really, really important that all of the boring stuff gets the funding it needs because Republicans do not fund for a single election cycle. They fund for a decade or a 40 year project. We have to get away from that kind of mentality really thinking about victory, not just what happens in 2020 or 2022, but what does this lay the groundwork in 2030 or 2032 or beyond? All right. So let's maybe turn to one more challenge for Democrats, um, the effort from Republicans to suppress the vote, um, everything from narrowing the window of mail-in balloting to requiring more IDs. Um, How significant of a barrier is this, not only for federal-level races, but local and state-level races? It's a huge problem. Um, I think it's something that we have seen in states uh, as, the, as voting gets more difficult for top of the ticket, which is what they're intending to focus on. It gets harder for everything else. It's why it really matters who's running these elections on the local level. That's why wherever we can, we elect people who can make a meaningful change on this. Um, in Texas, we helped uh, Lena Hidalgo win the Harris County judgeship in 2018. And in Harris County, which is the county that includes Houston's third biggest county in America, the county executive is called judge. So she runs the county. One of the things that she did in 2020 was 10x the election administration budget from 3 million to over 30 million. She made sure that there was enough money to open 24 hour voting sites and to run voter polling and voter registration efforts all across the city to ensure that every possible Texan or every possible Houstonian um, had their ability to make their voice heard. So wherever we can, we got to make sure that the people in charge know every lever they can pull to make it easier for people to vote, even when state government might try to make it harder. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering, is there uh, anything specifically that Run for Something is doing to address the issues concerning um, suppressing the vote, anything like phone banking or lobbying? That's not really what Run for Something's focus is. We try and make sure that we're empowering the people who can best communicate with voters to do so, which means local candidates. Um, You know, I'm not a good messenger to a voter in Idaho or Texas, but a local candidate there is. So we want to make sure that those people are really able to have every good community, every good conversation they can. Well, this has been such a great episode. And I guess one last final question that usually ask all our guests is, um, do you have any final advice for young people listening um, of my generation, if they're thinking about running for office or um, if they're a little bit hesitant? Do it. It's never too early. It's also never too late to get started. 
Um, the filing deadline in Texas is December 13th for 2022 elections. Uh, from further races, it's maybe early next year, so very state to state and often county by county. You can sign up at runforwhat.net to learn more about how to run for office. Um, we are here to help you. If you are thinking about it two, three, five, ten years down the road, so many of the candidates we worked with in 2021 signed up with us in 2017, 2018. You know, I know it takes a few years to get your life in order. So it's never too early. It's never too late. Um, we are here to help you. And I promise, even if you lose, which you might, there's no shame in losing, it will be one of the most meaningful, life-changing things you'll ever do. Amanda, I can't thank you enough for what you have created in Run for Something. And I wish you the very best of luck. And I hope a lot of our listeners will go on your website and will sign up and do it. And I share your view that one of the most important things you can run for right now is control of the elections. Because with states passing laws that allow them to say, well, we think there's fraud, so we're going to certify a different slate than you voted for. That's really scary, and that is the end of democracy. So thank you for protecting our democracy, and we'll look forward to hearing from you again soon. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Amanda. Victor, I hope you were paying close attention to everything Amanda said, because I have some sneaky suspicion that someday you might run for something. Uh, I think you might run for something right on UCLA's campus right now, but in the future, who knows what's ahead for you? What did you think? I mean, it was such a phenomenal conversation. I think Amanda, we mentioned in the conversation, she's such a great communicator. And there's one point that mm -hmm. I think really stuck with me that relates to, I guess, why I ran for delegate here in Illinois. And it was just the importance of other people talking to you about the importance of running for office and participating in civics. She called it relational organizing. And Really, for me, that was my civics teacher in uh, my freshman year of high school um, who encouraged me to, run, uh, I guess, get involved in politics. And then when I was a senior in high school, I took his AP government class. And that's when he told me that there was this opportunity to run for a delegate position. And if he hadn't told me, I don't think I would have even known about the delegate yeah. position. So I think what she's doing right now to get the word of mouth out about the importance of running for election, running for local candidate, uh, running for local offices is so important. And I think just for me, that part really stuck out because that's part of the reason why I ran for a local office um, to become delegate. Um, and I know that will probably resonate yeah. for so many people across the country who have. How about you? What was your well, favorite part of the conversation? I, I really loved the whole conversation. And I loved that I think she really had great vision uh, when she founded this organization, I don't think back in 2017, I was focused on the importance of the school board. I didn't see what the Republicans were doing to take over state and local government and school boards and election commissions and the power that that gives them, uh, both in terms of gerrymandering at the state legislative level, in terms of curriculum, uh, critical race theory and critical thinking. There's just so many things going on. Um, and with election laws being passed that will not only suppress the vote and limit voting, but will also give power to someone other than the voter to determine who the slate of uh, elected people are, I think she's really onto something extremely important. And I'm just, I, I, I hope this episode gets a lot of listens and views and that people will respond by 
saying, you know, I do care about this and I'm ready to take on running for office. And I think one of the things that she said that I guess is striking to me is so much of politics, I think, nowadays is nationalized. And that becomes Mm -hmm. scary when you read a headline saying that, you know, democracy is about to crumble. And I think for her, you know, the really key part of Run for Something is really engaging on the local level. And Mm -hmm. um, that's really, I think, where people can make the key difference now, running for election offices, you know, for judge, for, um, for, for things that matter in your community. I think those are the important offices that will matter in terms of saving democracy. And so, you know, it's scary to read those headlines, but Run for Something, I think, is doing extraordinary work around just getting people engaged on the local level. I agree completely, and I'm grateful to her for what she's doing. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of iGen Politics. We hope you'll tune in for another episode next week. But in the meantime, follow us wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. Mm-hmm.